Welcome to the Strong Home Safe Families podcast, where we focus on building codes, mitigation, preparedness, and any topic that advances the disaster safety and resilience movement. I'm your host, Leslie Chapman Henderson, and I am with the Federal Alliance for Safe Homes, FLASH. As we've seen over the past decades, natural disasters are not slowing down, and wildfires are no exception. The 2020 wildfire season was record-setting, not only for the state of California, but the United States as a whole. Sadly, the continuing toll of wildfire losses makes it clear that there's more to do. As a result of that, we're having a conversation today with someone who has excellent ideas and plans and programs to help us get to this issue and the challenge of wildfire. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest, Michelle Steinberg, who is the Wildfire Division Director with the National Fire Protection Association. And Michelle is also a longtime Flash partner and wonderful friend. Welcome, Michelle. Well, hello, Leslie. It's so nice to talk to you today. Thank you. So, Michelle, before we get started, we, we on this podcast really like to hear about you, uh, your background, and, and just give you an opportunity to share anything about yourself and your professional journey. Great. Thank you. I am from the Boston area. I've been here pretty much my whole life, other than lots of other kinds of travel. Uh, And I started getting interested in the nexus or the relationship between nature and the built environment pretty early. And in fact, I had sort of a formative experience of disasters and hazards as a 12-year-old, when my parents moved into, we bought our first house as opposed to living in apartments when I was 12 in their old neighborhood in, in Quincy, Massachusetts. And that was in 1977. And that winter of 78 was the blizzard of 78. And in our neighborhood, that meant that the ocean was trying to get to the marsh. And it didn't really care that people had built roads and houses and things like that there. So we had a tremendous amount of ocean flooding it was astronomical high tides. We had power knocked out for days, tons of snow. There were houses washed out to sea in our neighborhood. Fortunately, my family was relatively safe. But just walking around that neighborhood, seeing the National Guard come in, seeing houses just smashed to splinters from nature's power was something that stays with you. And as I got older and learned more about environmental processes, especially ocean and uh, flooding, that just really fascinated me. And although I didn't go a science route in my education, I got very, very interested in in this issue and ended up working in environmental management of sorts with the state of Massachusetts. And that was actually floodplain management, which I had no idea was a thing until I started doing it. Was very well educated by the engineers and others, other scientists that I worked with at the state and learned about FEMA, learned about land use planning, went and got my degree in urban planning from Boston University uh, since I had been an English major and I just love to read and write and thought, how can I put this to use? So I've been really interested in this issue of how we build and where we build vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis nature. And when I got introduced to wildfire in the late 1990s, it struck me that it was the same problem, that we are building into areas where nature will do certain things like flood or burn, 
and we're not paying any attention to it. We're developing as if nature isn't there, <laughs> and we're just going to put our ideas um, onto the landscape without considering this. So that just completely fascinated me. That's sort of when I came to NFPA in the early 2000s. But I, in the meantime, I had worked for FEMA. I had worked for the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety and had gotten a really unique and wonderful education in hazards as well as issues having to do with the built environment, having to do with land use, and having to do with how we pay for these things, whether upfront through things like insurance costs or after the fact, like disaster costs. So that's a bit of my professional journey on the way to NFPA, where I've been since 2002. And so today you are the Wildfire Division Director at NFPA. And what is um, specific to your role now well, that role, I've been at NFK now for almost 20 years, and I started out in, I've worked all that time having to do with wildfire, primarily in outreach and education, but also a little bit of work on the codes and standards side of the house, which NFPA is a, an, a global nonprofit that our bread and butter is creating consensus codes and standards, but also building that information and knowledge about fire and life safety across a variety of, of hazards, including electrical hazards. So we do a lot of different things and wildfire is just one piece. But in my role as division director since 2014, I've been able to help evolve what essentially when I got there long before was sort of a standalone project. Firewise as a program was a great project, a great program still exists, but it was at that time really dependent almost entirely on grants from the U.S. Forest Service. And now we've evolved it so that my role is still in outreach and education with a, with a team, but we're teaming across departments at NFPA. So for example, we still have our longstanding cooperative agreement with the Forest Service that helps educate the public, the fire service, and many others with FireWise. But we also have wildfire mitigation training for professionals that is available through our education and development department. We built a credential called the Certified Wildfire Mitigation Specialist with our certifications department. We have research projects now through NFPA's Applied Research Group and our Independent Fire Protection Research Foundation. And we stood up an annual Wildfire Community Preparedness Day campaign that's been going on since 2014, co-sponsored by State Farm. We also interact with our colleagues in codes and standards operations because right now they're consolidating a lot of our emergency response-related standards into more comprehensive documents, and Wildfire is some of the first documents to be part of that process. Excellent. I want to talk before we get, and we're going to come back to NFPA later because I know you have a new initiative we want to be certain to discuss. Before we talk about basic wildfire mitigation, I think we should talk a little bit about wildfires themselves, because I think there are some very common myths and misconceptions in outreach and education that you guys are probably working, I'm sure, daily to overcome. And that's because people see a wildfire on the news and it looks like a stadium height conflagration mm -hmm. and wall of fire. But I think there's more to it than that. Can you just spend a few minutes on the so-called typical wildfire or some of the things that people may not know. Sure, happy to. And I think it's so important that people understand what makes wildfire a risk and, and what doesn't <laughs> and what it really yeah. does. It's so interesting to me because I truly came to this whole issue in the late 90s as a complete newbie. And so I still feel 
you know, I got educated and I had people willing to be patient with me and help me understand. And I want to be patient and help other people understand. So, you know, I was coming from flood and the engineers would joke with me of helping me read these um, charts on hy hydraulics and flood maps and things that I was just, it was foreign to me. And they said, okay, what you need to know, Michelle, is that water runs downhill. <laughs> so when you're out in the field, look down because that's where the floodplain is. So, hey, that's nice and easy. I can do that. And when I got to the fire world, they said, Michelle, what you need to know is that fire runs up. It runs uphill and you need to look up. And that was just the greatest. It doesn't always consistently run uphill, but there are physical science reasons why it's uh, more important to pay attention to wildfire if you're at the top of a steep slope, if you've been facing the southern aspect, which gets a lot more radiant heat up from the sun all day and dries things out, if you're in a certain formation and topography of where the wind will channel any burning material in one direction. So these kinds of elements that I learned from the science of wildfire were so helpful. And truly, I think when it comes to how wildfire spreads and impacts homes, there's even more to know, which is that, yeah, the, the big flames you see on the screen, they are scary. They could kill you. That is true. However, that is not what is typically destroying our homes and our communities. What's typically happening is that wall of flame is passing through the forest or the rangelands or whatever kind of fuel it's burning up, whatever kind of vegetation. The way it's generally impacting homes and businesses in a community is the embers or the firebrands that are the burning material that's chunking off of the trees or the grass or the shrubs and flying through the air on the wind. And you can see images of this when fires are happening. There's plenty of good videos of those little embers swirling around and it looks terrible, but you can see that people who are maybe evacuating or firefighters who are coming on, they're blowing past them. They're not really burning people. They're not hurting us. So we have this idea that, yes, we should, we as humans should be afraid of those big flames for sure. But those little embers that don't really hurt us are what is taking our homes down because the embers will pile up. You're in Florida, so you don't know about snow, but if you have dry leaves and things that accumulate in corners, in gutters, that's where those embers are going to pile up and do their damage. And they are like, you know, snowflakes, one ember, no big deal. A whole pile sitting on your house for a while is a big deal and will get the house igniting and burning. The other issue I think that's important for people is typically in a wildfire where it's a large event in the sense of it's spread out, you could have hundreds of homes exposed to this uh, fire with the embers and everything else going on at the same time. And there is not going to be anybody there in front of your house typically. You know, when you're talking about maybe there's 10 fire, fire trucks and you've got 100 homes, how can they possibly be in front of every house. So what's happening is the embers are coming in, they're igniting things near your house, on your house, and the house is burning for hours and hours with nobody intervening. And that is the biggest thing that we have to get across to people is what we're asking you to do to protect your home is predicated on the idea that nobody will be there with a hose. Now, it's great if somebody happens to be able to do that. And we do have many opportunities to do that when we can mitigate and make it safe for firefighters. But realistically, for major events like just what we've seen in 2020. It isn't realistic to expect that every home has its own dedicated fire truck with enough water in front of it. So we have to make it conditions on the home and around the home to minimize the likelihood that it will start to ignite and burn. And that is essential for people to understand because it also points up that despite the fact that we've had 40,000 structures destroyed in the past three years, <laughs> 
and nearly $40 billion in insured losses from wildfires, there are things that people can do, dis- mm-hmm. even though they may not realize mm-hmm. when they see that wall mm-hmm. of fire, that there are things they can do. And you've really set the table for that. So there's a, a DIY or a do-it-yourself project that homeowners can do that is one of the essential and most effective ways to stop those embers and that wildfire. And I think it would be another surprise for our listeners. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I usually think of the DIY as sort of a package, but what we really like to help people understand is there really are things that you can do to prevent home ignitions from a wildfire. The science is showing us that some of the most effective things are really often the easiest things to tackle. So what we're talking about, again, is that exterior of the home, your roof, your windows, your sidings, any vents and other openings, just making sure that the home envelope is ignition resistant. And by that, we mean no place for the embers to gather, no material that they can burn, and no way for them to get into the house. So if they get sucked up into an attic vent, for example, that's a very common way that we see homes destroyed in, in wildfires. So we're talking about presuming you have a decent build of a house, which is pretty easy to achieve. We're saying clean out your gutters. Sweep your decks and porches, rake back the mulch that's right next to your house. So that sounds pretty easy, right? It does. And so when I first met you, which we won't talk about that, but that's okay. There was this concept of defensible Mm -hmm. space and and the landscaping. And I think that has evolved and become a little bit more sophisticated as well into separate kinds of zones. Can you talk about, first tell us what defensible Mm -hmm. space is. And then also, what are the zones and what's the thinking and the, the new insights right. behind that? So I think this is, you know, and I want to say that I don't come, as I've explained, from a firefighting background. I have had such a great benefit working with the fire service folks in my world for so many years. But I see clearly that the term defensible space comes from the fire service because what they're saying is, if you want me to come and protect your house, I need a place to stand where I'm safe. I need water. I need things to be clear. I need to have a fighting chance to save your house. And so this term evolved that, you know, if I've got clear space to operate in and I know that things aren't going to be burning like crazy by the time, you know, if a house is already fully involved in flame and you've got hundreds of houses exposed, they're probably not going to be able to do much. But if you've got this this notion of defensible space, there is truth to it. But I think that, again, we're... It's troublesome in the sense that we're giving people the notion that if if I do this, then they'll do that. If I clean up around my home, then a firefighter will definitely be here, which isn't really necessarily going to happen. So we've got to be a little clearer. And I like to talk about the home ignition zone. People tend to understand ignition as a term, so it's it's not too confusing for folks. But the idea is you're preventing, by doing the work in this zone, it's not just about can the firefighters get here? It's more about let's keep embers and flames from getting onto the house or into the house. And we know there's going to be fire around. You know, we're not going to eliminate the possibility of fire near your house. But if it is near your house, keeping it small. So things near your house that aren't going to create a big flame, like a big clump, a big pile of firewood up next to your house or a big clump of trees that hasn't been maintained well or branches hanging over your house that could ignite and drop onto your roof. So the idea is that you're keeping fires small that might burn near your home, keeping them from spreading easily so you don't have like a continuous bed of, say, dead pine needles, you know, pine needle drop all the way to your house. Basically, the idea is if your home doesn't ignite, 
it can't burn. And if it isn't igniting and then burning, you don't really need it to be defended, quote, I'm making little air quotes here (laughs) on our audio recording. (laughs) It's going to be, you know, the idea is that you've got to help the house be okay if nobody comes. And the best ways to do that are paying attention to the the home envelope and then everything around it with just, you know, really the most important things we're finding is just that five feet. Yes, you want to pay attention to all the property the extent of your property, but that's really where you can start. And many of those things are easy to tackle. Right. And and one of the things that we've said over the years, and it's funny because speaking of our partners in the fire service and the first responders, when we say this to them, sometimes they pause and look at me and then they'll say, yes, that's mm-hmm. correct. But one of the things, the phrases that we've coined, and that's something at Flash that we, you know, try to keep it simple is no fuel, right. no fire. And that, you know, that whole premise that it takes three elements, air, heat, Mm -hmm. and fuel. And without all three, you can't have fire. And so what we try to do is frame, just as you've discussed, you can't control the air and you can't stop the heat, but you can remove or reduce the fuel. And then people don't really necessarily know what mm-hmm. fuel is, but it kind of sets up that conversation. Right. What's fuel? Right. To your right. When, you know, and again, and again, working with needles. my colleagues in the fire yeah. service and everybody talking about fuel and ladder fuel. And right. I'm, my brain is going all <laughs> kinds of images like can of gasoline and a ladder and what, what are you talking about? So, you know, we want to make sure people <laughs> understand those terms. And, you know, and I tell people, I, talk to reporters all the time, for example, who aren't experts in this. And I say, when you hear a forestry person or a fire person say fuel, they are talking about trees. (laughs) And unfortunately, in this scenario, we're talking about your house. Your house is a fuel package. Uh, Somebody sarcastically described it as, you know, homes at risk as being nicely painted firewood, you know, which uh, scares us. You know, we don't want to think about that. But there are, again, things that you can do to keep your home from igniting. And I I don't know if, you know, is this a time that you'd like to talk a little about the zones that we speak to, sort of where do you start and how do you move out into the landscape? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. So the first zone is really the home itself. And we really have to tell people the home itself because that notion of defensible space makes people think about the hundred feet away with the tree. And that's, you know, not probably your biggest problem. It could be, but it probably isn't. Probably it's your gutters filled with material that you need to pay attention to. So paying attention to the home itself, a well-built home obviously has so many benefits, including wind resistance, hail resistance, all the things that Leslie, your your team promotes across multi multi hazards and all these great benefits that you can get from a well built home, but you know you can check your roof to make sure you don't have damage that uh, any holes or cracks that could lead to embers getting penetrating in there. Cleaning out those gutters if you have gutters, making sure your windows are sound. When you go to replace these things, looking for the better quality that is going to give you some more fire protection. Siding, I mean, wood siding, yes, it could ignite. Vinyl siding can melt. However, if you don't have a lot of material close to the home that can ignite, your siding is not as worrisome if you can do the work in that five-foot zone making sure there's no way for the embers to get in. And again, we talked about embers as this culprit that we don't see on the news, but is real and is taking down probably the majority of our homes. So if you've got, you think about roof vents, attic vents, those need to be screened. If you've got 
pet doors, doggy or kitty needs to go in and out, those can open and let embers in the house during during a wildfire. Foundation vents. Um, some of the post-fire investigations I've actually looked at or actually been on myself, people are baffled, like, how did this fire take my home? Well, you must have had vents somewhere. Well, I, the garage, the attached garage had vents at the foundation level, at the ground level that they didn't even think about. And those were wide open and let the embers right in. So all those little things that you can look at are really key. And then paying attention to anything attached to the house, and that's your porch, your deck, even your stairs and your fence. So if these are things that could carry fire to the main part of your house, they're part of that home ignition zone that needs to be treated. And there are just a number of things, simple things that can be done to alleviate that problem. And the other is just the landscaping right in that zone. Again, if, you've, if you're in a community where homes are pretty close together, you may be feeling like you need to have material right up against the house for privacy or, you know, aesthetics. But really, we, we're saying five feet. Now, I'm five foot four on a good day. And so there's not a lot of space between. <laughs> I put my feet <laughs> on the foundation and took a nap on the ground. It's not a lot of space. Five feet's not that far. But this is where we tend to have landscapers that maybe put combustible mulch right up against the house, decide that you need a bush or a shrub that grows tall right up under your windows or your eaves. And these can carry fire. So any any debris that accumulates there can be an issue. So this is the area that, you know, bare earth, little annuals that won't carry the fire. You can have plants, but nothing that's going to grow and grow and grow over seasons and become a problem. And then just looking at sort of what's on top of your flat surfaces like decks and porches and what's underneath them, because that's where embers can accumulate and cause problems. As we're moving out into the next five to 30 feet, and again, this is very generic because everybody's property looks a little bit different, but this is where you don't have to be as meticulous, but you want a landscape. If you have a lawn, make sure that lawn is well-maintained so it doesn't carry fire. So well-watered, short grass. If you've got other kinds of plantings, you know, you can use mulch out there further away from the house. But, you know, if you have big trees and you have a lot of shrubbery growing up under it, maybe separating some of that out so you don't have fire burning from the surface of the ground or grass up into a shrub, then up into a tree, creating these tall flame links that throw a lot of heat. You just don't want that much heat near your home. And then as you move further out 30 feet to the extent of your property, whether it's 100 feet or more, just thinning any clumps of trees, just making sure the landscape's in good condition. And actually, that's where you might need to start working with your neighbor because not all of us have that much space all around our property to help them reduce the fuels for the fire that could impact both of you. So, and that your neighbor also might be a public agency like the town or the state or a national forest. So trying to understand what your neighbor, whether that's a fellow homeowner or a public agency is doing on the land is helpful to understand your relative risk. So that is a great roadmap, whether it's an existing home or you're shopping for a new home. And before we talk about your new initiative, can you just give us a very brief description of the national cleanup day that you sponsor with State Farmer? Absolutely. That's the Wildfire Community Preparedness Day. And we just say prep day for short. (laughs) That's a long name. So yes, it is May 1st. It's every year it's on the first Saturday in May. This year it'll be May 1st. And it actually started, uh, we piloted it in Colorado in 2013, and it actually came out of conversations we'd had with middle school and high school youth and their families about what they knew about wildfire, what they were concerned about, how they would like to learn, and what would help them 
get involved in risk reduction. And they like this idea of like a day of service. And when we piloted in Colorado, we found out that all the grownups wanted to play too. <laughs> so the FEMA region, the American Red Cross chapter, a number of other entities kind of raised their hand and said, we'd like to do projects on that day too. So we realized we had something good. Yeah, it was really, it was quite an eye-opening experience. And of course, that was, you know, a year after the Waldo Canyon fire. It was a few months before the big Black Forest fire in El Paso. So it was very timely and it was very much top of mind for people to engage, which has been great. Sure. So it's State Farm has really been looking to do more with wildfire mitigation and promoting these efforts. So they've been a great sponsor and we decided to use the the donation that they make or the contribution to give back to the communities that are doing it or the entities that decide to do a project on the day. And so for the last seven or eight years now, we've provided a small project award of $500 to each applicant. So we're able to do that. Nowadays, we're able to do it for 150 applicants who apply for that. So yeah, it is That's It great. is really cool stuff. What we will do is this podcast will be great. out before initially, and it'll be mm-hmm. evergreen and available, but it'll be out before May 1st. So we'll be certain to promote that day because whether they're a grant recipient or not, communities can participate. Okay. So as we're moving forward to our conclusion, but before we do that, I want to ask you a couple more questions. You've got a new initiative. I've referenced it a couple of times. Tell us about Out. I am more than happy to tell you about Outthink Wildfires. Leslie, thank you so much. So this new initiative, Outthink Wildfire, is kind of born of a couple of years of pondering and trying to understand why with all the work that NFPA has been doing, Forest Service, Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network, FLASH, every, everybody who's involved in reducing wildfire risks and dealing with natural disasters and trying to change the situation. As I've been saying, you know, we've been working on this for about 20 or so years at NFPA. And when we look at the fire damages and the acreages that are burning every year, the problem's getting worse. And that's kind of a bad feeling to have is, gee, so what have I been doing for the last two decades if the problem is getting worse? And of course, the last few years, as you you addressed at the beginning of this interview, you know, the massive losses we've had just in the last few years are extremely disheartening for so many of us in this arena. And I think maybe the campfire was what finally made me feel like, all right, what are we doing here? It was a really broken feeling of... I remember Very sad. feeling, yep. and, and listen, so we all feel that same way. Sure thing. Absolutely. Fire. It's after the 2017, mm-hmm. 18, 19, yep. and even last year, I think it's got all of us looking mm-hmm. for a new right. Way. Right. And it really, you know, our, our CEO kind of jokes, and we, he's done some interviews around this. He feels very strongly about doing things, uh, you know, being active, being, you know, aggressive about, you know, doing some things is is good, but effort alone is not going to get us there. We have to look at why, you know, why is this continuing to happen? And someone said to me when I was really down in the dumps about what am I doing here, you know, and they said, you've been trying to solve this problem with a voluntary community program and your voluntary community program is awesome. No problem with it, but all by itself, it's not going to fix the problem. And that was just this little aha moment for me. I sort of knew that, but to have someone say that made me feel right. We need to be activating something that the NFPA calls the fire and life safety ecosystem, because in other areas of fire and life safety, uh, electrical hazards, other kinds of hazards, we see this happen all over the world where 
only a little bit is getting done. And what they look at is sort of eight cogs. I won't get into everything, but they talk about government responsibility. They talk about an informed and activated public. They talk about effective fire response, use of codes and standards, enforcement of those codes and standards, a skilled workforce that knows what to do to try to reduce the risk. And so many of those things apply to wildfire. And yet so many of those things are areas that we have not engaged in in any meaningful way. And so that was sort of our big wake up was we need to be activating on all cylinders. We need to be working across a whole bunch of things. And our our CEO challenged us to say, Jim Pauley is our, our president and CEO at NFPA. He challenged us to say, what are the top five things? If you could have anything, right, that could be influenced. And we said, we have got to get people to start using standards, whether it across land use and buildings, building construction to start. We know enough that we know we can make a difference. We don't, maybe not perfect. We don't know every single thing about this hazard, but we know what we've seen over 20 and 30 years, that these things will make a difference. The way we build and how we build and how we use the land is going to make a difference. And we have, what is it? 45 million homes, I think, that are so at, at high risk across the country, those have to be mitigated and those have to be retrofitted. And we can't just let those people, that's what FireWise has been trying to do with a voluntary program for many years. We've got to put more emphasis on that and get policymakers to understand how dire this situation is. And that, frankly, I look at it as all these homes built in the interface without much attention to the hazard as sitting ducks. And it's just a matter of time before the next paradise, you know, uh, the next campfire takes out these these communities. So we have to start now. Our concept is that through policy changes in five major areas, that we want to end the destruction of communities from wildfire over the next 30 years. So by 2050, that disasters like we've seen at the Tubbs fire, you know, over and over again in Gatlinburg and Bastrop, Texas, that these will be a thing of history. These will not be our future. So I want to talk a little bit about the five areas. So within that five, it's sort of our wish list. So I, I named two, which is we have millions of homes at risk today. We need to get every home that's at risk mitigated, meaning doing the work around the structure and then retrofit, which we usually mean by the structure itself. So new roofs, uh, new siding, new windows, wherever it's needed, we need to put more investment in that area and get policymakers thinking about how we can do this to help homeowners come up to snuff. The second is for new construction that people use and enforce sensible building codes and land use standards around this. And this is a very tough nut to crack. And this goes right down to the local level. I think when folks think about policy, they think about Congress, they think about a federal policy. Those are important. But honestly, when a land use planner or a building official or developer makes a decision at the local level, that impact will last for decades, 50, 60, 70 years when you're building a community and you have that opportunity at the beginning to do it better. And that's what we're trying to achieve is that from what we know, there are ways to design these communities so that they're not the sitting ducks that we have today. Yeah. So those are the two Absolutely. biggies that you, know, you and I are right in that space, Leslie, with what Flash does. The third, I think, and this is key, this is an underlying, you know, is, you know, as we looked at this, we said, well, do we throw Firewise out the window because, you know, it hasn't been working so-called? No, no, no. We need to continue to educate the public, activate the public, and they need to know not only the 
these preparedness things that we just talked about. But in wildfire, it's a life-saving measure to evacuate when the situation calls for it. And what we've unfortunately seen is that people were either did not know how or were not able to evacuate readily in some of these disasters where we had massive loss of life, which is absolutely unacceptable. And we have to get people to where they can do. Yeah. So tragic. And, and Michelle, I remember seeing an interview with someone who said that they looked out the window and they saw the wildfire in the distance, but they mm-hmm. thought they were okay. So mm-hmm. they went to bed and right. that was very shocking. And so I think that Number three is is a critical the continued education on right. prep as well and it is and it is you know evacuation is is one of the areas of policy you know that that policy can really make a difference because right now it is fractured across all the different jurisdictions. Do I know in my own community who is responsible for evacuation if we had to evacuate for some reason? Not really. Uh, Some places it's the sheriff. You know, law enforcement gets involved. Are we talking to law enforcement about this? You know, there's all kinds of issues around it. And also, we've left the public completely in the dark, you know, about what they should be doing and what they should be looking out for. So that's a really important part. So the public education across all that is is the third plank. We also are calling on uh, government, especially at the federal level, but also state and local, to pick up the pace on what we call fuel management. So this is the things through the Healthy Forest Restoration Act of 2003 that called on public agencies to start doing more with forest thinning, mechanical treatments, prescribed fire, all the things that mean that we are managing our forests better so that they don't become the big fuel beds for massive fires. There still will be fire. Fire is a natural part of managing these lands, but this is a culture change from 100 years of national policy that said, thou shalt put every fire out as soon as it starts. So, you know, that that hasn't been the policy now for, for several decades, but it's a hard shift to say we have to start helping nature do its thing so that we can have these healthy ecosystems that when fire does occur, it doesn't become the raging inferno that we've seen lately. And if we know that it's the kind of ecosystem or fuel type that is going to be serious, that we plan accordingly. So all of that fuel management piece, we NFPA can't control that. That's not our expertise, but we think that's such an important element of all this that we will support policies that help make that happen wherever it needs to happen. And finally, we talked about the fact that we in the United States rely on our local fire service for response. And in NFPA's own research, our fourth needs assessment of the U.S. Fire Service, where we interview or we survey 26,000 plus local fire departments. So think of your municipal paid or volunteer department. These folks, 88% of those local departments actually do respond to wildfires on a regular part of their business. So it's it's often hidden because these tend to be small. Even in New England, we don't even call them wildfires. We call them brush fires. So we have this lack of understanding of what our own fire service is doing. But they said, you know, even though so those who the 88% that do respond said only about 37% of all of the folks who would respond are trained. And only about two-thirds of them have what they need for personal protective equipment. So, in other words, the clothing and things that they would wear to protect themselves, which are different than doing a house fire, you know, doing a structure fire. So, that is scary because we are asking these folks to put themselves in, you know, mortal danger, frankly, to try to make a stand when we haven't been doing the right things around infrastructure training personal protective equipment, et cetera. So, so it is, that is a very strong push and that is 
often a very local matter of supporting our fire services to be able to do their job appropriately and effectively and safely. Wow. So it sounds like you're out Think Wildfire. You guys really have boiled it down to five planks that are going to really change the dynamic from, as you described, from the Firewise tradition, which is very critical, and I'm glad it's going to continue. So I'm just going to recap, and then I'm going to ask you our final Mm -hmm. question because we're running up on time. But this is just a wonderful conversation, especially to catch people up on what's happening. So plank one, mitigate, and this is my recap, (laughs) plank one, mitigate, plank two, new construction, which we both know means building codes. Number three is continued education, including firewise, but don't forget the what to do when it Mm -hmm. happens, as well as the preparedness for fuel management. Like we said, no fuel, no fire. And five is training and PPE and supporting those local departments, because that's what it comes down to when there is someone in that space that is available to try and defend, which, you know, we acknowledge it's better to, you know, not need that in the first place. So, wow, congratulations on that. And we'll look forward to joining forces with you through our organization and our partners to support this because it's a very clear-eyed vision for how we can really get at this problem. But before we close, Michelle, the one thing I want to ask you is, For the people that aren't part of the so-called disaster safety movement like us, what's your advice? What what do you want them to do? You know, what's the fundamental for the I think, you know, one of the saddest things that I see, and I unfortunately have seen it repeatedly, is that people don't understand the risk that they're living in. And when the terrible event occurs, they are distraught that nobody told them, you know, um, how would I know? And I think it's imperative that we educate ourselves and anybody that we're responsible for in our jobs and our, you know, our employees, our constituents, our voters, our, our citizens, our taxpayers, we need to help people understand what the risk looks like and then what they can do about it. There shouldn't be anybody that doesn't know that they have a risk and there shouldn't be anybody who has a risk that doesn't know there's something they can do because it starts with that. It starts right there. Very, very good. You've got that right. Well, I want to thank Michelle for your time today and really bringing this, bringing us into the, the future of how we're going to confront and overcome the wildfire risk in this country. And I want to thank all of our listeners for listening to this week's episode of Strong Home Safe Families. Please don't forget that you can email us at info at flash.org or call us anytime toll free at 877-221-SAFE. That's 877-221-7233. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, share, and provide us a review on iTunes. So until next time, 